get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, did you hear? Stand up for your right. One more time. Get up, stand up, did you hear? You stand up Don't give up the fight Get up, stand up Stand up for your right You get up, stand up Don't give up the fight You get up, stand up Stand up for your right You get up, stand up Hism schism, trying to go to heaven in a hism schism. We know and we understand. Almighty God is a living man. You can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Now you see the light. Stand up for your right. This is David Penn, uh, the Professor Penn Podcast, and welcome back. Get Up, Stand Up. Uh, Bob Marley was a prophet and a poet. His lyrics and his presentation are timeless. These are timeless poems, and they're just as applicable today as they were when he sang them during the most intense period of decolonization. And I think that it would benefit the current time if we brought back the entire Bob Marley 
catalog. And everybody steeped themselves in this philosophy because what Bob was saying was no piracy, no slavery, and let's not make our money on drugs. Let's grow it in the backyard. Plant the seed. Plant your own seeds. So it was a pretty positive, pro-human, anti-control message. So a little news, I'd like to talk a little news. You know, it's possible that in the Ukraine, over the next few months, it's possible, I said it's possible, I'm not making a prediction, I'm saying it's a possibility, that the Russian army will very clearly come to overwhelm the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians will start to crumble and fall back from the eastern Ukraine back into the western Ukraine. That will be the pivotal moment. And we will either live or die as the people based on what happens at that moment. If it happens, it's a possibility. Because if it happens, it is possible that the Biden administration that has shown, have you noticed there's been no signs of peace talks? Every other conflict in my life, Israeli conflicts, Vietnamese conflicts, oh my gosh, so Rhodesia, South Africa, everybody's always talking about peace talks. There's always peace talks. But there's no talk of peace talks. There's actually no talk of peace. So we're sitting here, the American people, and we're just not paying attention. And I want to bring this to everyone's focus. If that Russian army comes in and that Ukrainian army starts to collapse, it's possible that the Biden administration will either add air power flown by American pilots or possibly insert American troops into the western Ukraine to prevent the complete collapse and overtaking of the country by the Russian army. That will put the United States and Russia in direct conflict. I ask everyone out there to contemplate what that might mean to your future. Is that a well-being future? Two nuclear superpowers engaged directly in war. Is this a well-being future path for our people? And the answer obviously is possibly, quite possibly not. So we want to avoid finding out what happens next by stopping If this comes into being, if this comes to truth, the possibility that the U.S. government, our government, and we are the people, it's our government. We the people are the government. We the people. So it's ours. We broke it. We own it. We own it. So what will we do? We can start writing our senators and our congresspeople. Don't have to go out in the streets yet. Just start writing letters every day. You just go to their websites. They have submission forms. You don't have to even write the letter. It's all digital. You just go who you are, what your address is, what your telephone number is, because they don't want any terrorists threatening them, and no one needs to threaten them. This is not about threatening them. This is about making I statements. I do not want to see the U.S. military directly involved with the Russian military in the Ukraine, in case the Ukrainian army collapses. It's just a possibility. Let's start thinking about putting our will forth as a political strategy, because it's up to us. If we don't 
step up to the plate and take a few swings at this, you know, we're going to strike out for sure. No signs of peace talks. There are no signs of peace talks. So that's my Ukraine comment for the day. And we're going to keep commenting about this because it's changing there very quickly. On a personal note, I'm a political activist here in Minnesota, and uh, I try to be uh, very uh, nonviolent, non-confrontational in my political life here. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, hallmarks of political life in Minnesota is consensus. We're a consensus uh, organization here in Minnesota. You know, Minnesota nice. We don't like conflict. And I find myself suddenly being beset on all sides by evil men. And why I say they're evil is they never came to talk to me about what I believed or what I was trying to accomplish. So I actually have conflict now. And that is fantastic for me. And I think it's fantastic for this community because my personal goal is to learn how to walk through this political world and improve it, make it a well-being world, and not let the machinations of evil people affect my well-being. And that is a significant new challenge in my life. And I like challenge. I like to grow. I always like that next, that next mountain to climb. And I'm there. I'm climbing that mountain. And we're, we're a community. We're all climbing this mountain together. We're an action community. We're, we, we are about well-being. And we're about well-being within the context of a very unwell society. We're building a new well-being society. So how do we deal with people that are clearly unwell? Like a government, we the people, that has us involved in a potential direct conflict with a nuclear superpower. That is a symptom of intense, critical unwellness. There's nothing well about this. So if we would like to survive, we need to heal. And that's what this podcast today is about, is uh, what are the strategies for that? And more evidence of how this unwellness came to be. Because we've accepted it, like, I don't know, like it's some kind of a reality TV show. So without further ado, could you play this uh, long clip? This is a clip in the voice, the actual voice of a, a very famous Indian politician, Gandhi. I think many of you have heard of him. I don't know if you've listened to this clip. Uh, Gandhi is much maligned these days, very maligned, very maligned. Not interesting to me that he's maligned. I come from a different time when he was really revered because his spiritual power was the, the spiritual railhead of a movement, a people's movement, a people's movement that brought down an enterprise based on slavery and drugs and piracy. And that was the British colonization of India, the crown jewel of the crown. In other words, extracting all the wealth out of India and taking it back to London and leaving the Indians poor and at war with each other. And there's conflict there to this day because of the seeds that the empire planted. But Gandhi was this phenomenal voice and an inspiring voice. And he inspired me. And I hope 
this clip inspires you. You have to listen carefully because it's it's fairly complex. Please. There is an indefinable, mysterious power that pervades everything. I feel it, though I do not see it. It is this unseen power which makes itself felt and yet defies all proof because it is so unlike all that I perceive through my senses. It transcends the senses, but it is possible to reason out the existence of God to a limited extent. Even in ordinary affairs, we know that people do not know who rules or why and how he rules, and yet they know that there is a power that certainly rules. In my tour last year in Mysore, I met many poor villagers, and I found upon inquiry that they did not know who ruled Mysore. They simply said, some god ruled it. If the knowledge of these poor people was so limited about their ruler, I, who am infinitely lesser in respect to God than they to their ruler, need not be surprised if I do not realize the presence of God, the King of Kings. Nevertheless, I do feel, as the poor villagers felt about Mysore, that there is orderliness in the universe. There is an unalterable law governing everything and every being that exists or lives. It is not a blind law, for no blind law can govern the conduct of living beings. And thanks to the marvelous researches of Sir J.C. Bose, it can now be proved that even matter is life. That law, then, which governs all life is God. Law and the lawgiver are one. I may not deny the law or the lawgiver because I know so little about it or him. Just as my denial or ignorance of the existence of an earthly power will avail me nothing, even so my denial of God and his law will not liberate me from its operation, whereas humble and mute acceptance of divine authority makes life's journey easier even as the acceptance of earthly rule makes life under it easier. I do dimly perceive that whilst everything around me is ever-changing, ever-dying, there is underlying all that change a living power that is changeless, that holds all together, that creates, dissolves, and recreates. That informing power of spirit is God, and since nothing else that I see merely through the senses can or will persist, he alone is. And is this power benevolent or malevolent? I see it as purely benevolent, for I can see that in the midst of death life persists, in the midst of untruth truth persists, in the midst of darkness light persists. Hence I gather that God is life, truth, light. He is love. He is the supreme good. But he is no God 
who merely satisfies the intellect if he ever does. God, to be God, must rule the heart and transform it. He must express himself in every smallest act of his votary. This can only be done through a definite realization more real than the five senses can ever produce. Sense perceptions can be and often are false and deceptive, however real they may appear to us. Where there is realization outside the senses, it is infallible. It is proved not by extraneous evidence, but in the transformed conduct and character of those who have felt the real presence of God within. Such testimony is to be found in the experiences of an unbroken line of prophets and sages in all countries and climes. To reject this evidence is to deny oneself. This realization is preceded by an immovable faith. He who would, in his own person, test the fact of God's presence can do so by a living faith. And since faith itself cannot be proved by extraneous evidence, the safest course is to believe in the moral government of the world and therefore in the supremacy of the moral law, the law of truth and love. Exercise of faith will be the safest where there is a clear determination summarily to reject all that is contrary to truth and love. I confess that I have no argument to convince through reason. Faith transcends reason. All as I can advise is not to attempt the impossible. That's something to listen to many times. Uh, this man is the liberator of a billion people. And he was fighting the same colonial globalist empire that ruled over the colonies that are the source of our current 50-state union. Same empire, same business model, the business model of colonization and exploitation that is worked out for profit as, and I keep saying this because it's critical, drugs and slavery and piracy. And he stood against that and Martin Luther King in this country cited uh, Gandhi as his source for his ministry as he sought to liberate the black community from the oppression and the assault on their human rights that they were experiencing in the United States then and continue to experience today just to a very significant degree, a different, a 2.0 suffering. Martin Luther King showed up uh, for the 1.0 liberation. Now we're to the 2.0 period. And, and he's been criticized, Martin Luther King, because he preached nonviolence. And I, I understand this now only because I'm being attacked by evil men. And my initial impulse is when I'm attacked is to fight. And 
I realize what Gandhi is saying with truth and love is that if I'm going to preserve my own spiritual integrity when I'm surrounded by this evil, I am going to have to walk the path of truth and love. Otherwise, in fighting this evil, I will become a captive of the dark side. And what Gandhi was preaching and what he was trying to teach billions of people to do was how do we liberate ourselves from slavery and drugs and piracy without giving up the essence of our humanity? And this is something people will discover when they go into the arena and they're ready to fight and give their life for faith and family and country. So this Gandhi piece, this is a political leader. This is a politician. This is the politics of liberation that threw off the most powerful empire in world history at the it pro- probably up till that time, the most powerful empire in world history, the most sustained empire. And he threw this off. I mean, he threw it off. And he was also involved in the liberation of South Africa. This guy cast a giant shadow. So all of the criticisms of him aside for another day. It's his message of love and truth, of nonviolence and truth. So in the political here in my backyard, as I speak to the other activists that are hearing this, we have a new politics to bring forward. It's the politics of truth, of transparency, of oratory, everything on the table. No backstabbing, no gossiping, no behind-the-back kind of games. Because when we do it at the local level, it spreads. It becomes the ideology and the strategy and the tactic of our entire community. How do we change an unwell country? And we do it one person at a time, one interaction at a time, one presentation of the truth directly to an antagonist, and let's see what happens. And let's use the political process. The truth is the bedrock of that process. And let's walk nonviolently so that we don't lose ourselves in this very serious battle that we're engaged in today. I'm engaged in it. There are thousands, tens of thousands. There are an entirely new troop of people that have come in to the political process. I am but one of them that are skilled, trained, and ready to pursue the preservation of the Constitution of the United States. So, let's look at what happens when we fall from this lofty goal. Let's play this next clip. It's very interesting. Those good neighbors, Canada and America, got together again when President Kennedy visited the Parliament building in Ottawa. Canadian Premier Diefenbaker and his wife welcomed Mr. and Mrs. Kennedy. The President was honored with an invitation to address the Dominion Parliament. He appealed for continued cooperation. Geography has made us neighbors. History has made us friends. Economics has made us partners. And necessity has made us allies. 
Those whom nature has so joined together, let no man put asunder. Governor General Vanier and his wife held a reception at Government House in the visitor's honor. Major General Vanier, DSO, MC and Bar, fought in France in World War I. He is a French-Canadian. But perhaps it was the President's beautiful wife, Jackie, who most took the eye on this occasion. It's more than 60 years since America had so young a First Lady. The mission to Canada was an auspicious beginning to the meeting with world statesmen abroad on which President Kennedy has embarked. And of course, President Kennedy is uh, a martyr and he's been lionized. And his assassination ha has been uh, shrouded in, in many different kinds of theories about what happened to him and how it happened and why it happened. And let's just pause it for a second. And I don't, I'm not saying I agree or disagree. It's just, just a thought exercise. Maybe there was some uh, conspiracy, which, you know, the, uh, we, we went over this previously. The House uh, Committees on Assassination did say there was a conspiracy. And then you say, well, who conspired? Who has the kind of juice to have a conspiracy to kill a president? Okay, these are some pretty powerful people. And what was Kennedy doing? I mean, there's powerful people out there on the playing field. Well, Kennedy was up there putting that smiling face on, meeting a Canadian Prime Minister, John Diefenbaker. And this Prime Minister was very conservative. Kennedy was a liberal. Canada is part of the crown, the Commonwealth. Kennedy was a man who believed deeply in the Atlantic Charter, and he was against the business model of piracy and drugs and slavery, at least by necessity, possibly not by heart, but by necessity, leading that Democrat Party at that time, he was a beacon of light. He was, you know, leading the country, the country and the world out of the colonial period. He was talking about the self-determination of individual peoples. You know, he was thought he was a very liberal person, and he was in, in conflict with this very conservative Diefenbaker, this prime minister of Canada. Well, guess what? He and the security agencies of the United States heavily involved themselves in Canadian election politics, and they sought mightily to get this guy out of office, and they succeeded. They got a new prime minister in, Lester Pearson, who was a leftist, who was more aligned with the Kennedy leftist agenda. And that's not really the important part right now. This is a long time ago. What's important was Kennedy, who we might wonder in a thought exercise, could he have been a victim of some kind of conspiracy that involved security assets? like an ex-Marine who defected to Russia, married a Russian, came back to the United States, was seen in the Mexican-Soviet embassy just weeks before Kennedy was shot. I don't know. Sounds a little spooky to me. I don't have any, you know, I don't have any 8 by 10 glossies. So I'm just saying it's a little strange. Well, look at Kennedy. He's using the security services. They're undermining Canadian elective politics. This is not the kind of transparency that Kennedy so glowingly talked about in many of his speeches. And we're going to play one of those speeches next time.
when we start out, because Kennedy had some soaring rhetoric about opposing secret societies. But at the same time, he was using them. This is called going to the dark side of the force. If you're going to preach and you're going to lecture and you're going to oratory, orate, excuse me, you know, give your opinion that we are not, that Americans reject secret societies, which means we reject lies. Why are you using those secret societies to undermine an elected government? Just a thought. Maybe Kennedy had all kinds of spooky things going on. Oh, like the Bay of Pigs. The story is, he approved it, but he didn't understand it. That sounds a little spinish to me. The CIA created an invasion force of Cuban expatriates, and Kennedy approved their insertion into Cuba in an attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro. I mean, this is, this is not love and truth. This is aggression and deceit. So you live by the sword and you die by the sword. And I think what uh, Gandhi was saying is if you're going to walk in these halls with these evil people, the way to protect yourself, to make politics an uplifting, well-being experience where you don't get your head blown off, you just have to tell the truth and be nonviolent. Gandhi was trying to protect himself, and he was giving all of us a model for how we can protect ourselves as we move into this political realm and we confront a very entrenched and, in some t- and sometimes very evil group of people that have a status quo in place that has us $32 trillion in debt and on the verge of nuclear war with the nuclear superpower. So to walk into this and maintain our spiritual dignity, I think that's what Gandhi was trying to teach me. And maybe you could learn from it too. Let's take a look at this next one, some of the little capers that we the people have been involved in over the last 50, 60 years. This next one's a doozy. Decades of struggle by the Chilean workers resulted in a monumental breakthrough in 1970 when a 62-year-old doctor by the name of Salvador Allende Gazan was elected to the presidency. Allende, a former health minister and leader of the left-wing popular Unity Coalition, set out to democratize the country's political and economic system, as well as increase access to health, education, and other essential rights for the majority of Chileans. The electoral victory of a socialist brought hope to Chile's poor, as well as the region's socialist movements. Despite the tragic end to his elected government, the Chilean leader's elegant and passionate defense of the oppressed and his heroic resistance to the right-wing coup continue to inspire generations of social justice activists. Allende. Allende. An immortal name among the leftists. Allende was a doctor 
and he was uh, part of the formation of the leftist Communist Workers' Party in Chile. And for some reason, I think it was the Monroe Doctrine. Probably the Monroe Doctrine. Not probably, certainly. Our foreign policy is based on the Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere. We say, that's we the people, let's not blame it on anybody else, we the people say, what kind of governance and what kind of ideologies will be in the Western Hemisphere? And you got the you know you got the Atlantic Charter on the other side, which is the free self determination of every people to figure out their own governance. This is a yin and yang, a little tornado. Atlantic Charter, Monroe Doctrine, two ends of the same yin-yang equation. I guess the Monroe Doctrine prevailed because our government, which is us, we the people, this was about 1970, you know, a lot of us were alive. We the people, supported by not opposing, by not resisting, by accepting our government's secret, occult intervention into Chilean politics to get rid of this socialist Allende because we had our interests down there. We didn't do it because we gave any care about the Chilean people. That had nothing to do with it. There was business interest there. There was drugs and slavery and piracy afoot. And our government had taken on the trappings, the, the direction, the goals of the British Empire, which we usurped with that Atlantic Charter, and the Japanese Imperial Empire, which we defeated, our government, our intellectuals who run our government, became influenced by the Atlantic, that European intellectual tradition we talked about, and also the Japanese imperial tradition because we took over their defense. And you know what? Those empires didn't like communism, even though President Kennedy was kind of a leftist, kind of the father of the leftists. So we went on down into Chile, and we deposed Allende in a very famous CIA-involved coup. Well, maybe the CIA wasn't involved. It's one of those car accidents. Four people on four corners looking at an accident. Everybody sees something else. Everybody sees something different. And all of those versions are true from the perspective of the viewer. The CIA, of course, says they had nothing to do with it. They're trustworthy people. What came after Allende was a complete nightmare. A nightmare. So let's start out here with a little clip of Mr. Nightmare. General Pinochet, how would you evaluate the success of the Junta to date? General, how would you evaluate the success of the Junta to date? De éxito completo. Please stop, Exit. please. Complete success. Por cuanto... A junta. One of my favorite words. A junta. A junta is a military dictatorship of about three people. It's a junta. 
It's a group of people, a group of generals, a junta, that suspend civil rights, suspend the electoral process, and they rule the country for the good of the people in a dictatorship, a junta. And here is a guy named Pinochet. You can see from his face, he's a very stylish dude. Let's continue with Mr. Pinochet. El gobierno se fijó metas inmediatas, vale decir, normalizar el país, recuperar el trabajo en las industrias y en el campo, lo cual se ha realizado en forma amplia, volver a dar la sensación de seguridad en nuestra moneda, de tener en parte la inflación que estaba desatada, lo cual también se ha logrado. Complete success because the aims that uh, were fixed by us at the beginning, they are all reached. We wanted to develop uh, order in the country and thus being achieved. Can you stop that, achieved. please? Uh, yes, we, thank you. We wanted to develop the order in the country and that's been achieved. Wow. That's called dictatorship. Order. That's what the people, and you know, we finance this. We accept it. And I'm not talking about just the American people. The Chilean people. Actually, this guy reflected their will. And I have to say something about this mass murderer. He's very stylish. You know, there's something about being stylish that covers up mass murder. Because as we're going to hear in a minute or two, this guy was a war criminal. Please continue wanted to restore the um, value of our money and also is being restored and the moral situation is uh, completely normal as we wanted. Can you predict when the power will be returned to the people of Chile? ¿Se puede prevenir cuando el gobierno va a ser devuelto al pueblo de Chile? Es una pregunta que la hacen todos, señorita. That's a question that everybody does. Pero Yo a todos les manifiesto que nosotros no podemos fijar plazos ni tiempo, sino and objetivos. All they get the same answer. We cannot fix a date and time or timetable, but uh, aims to reach objectives. Can you stop that, please? Okay, so this guy, this guy is a full-blown mass murderer. During his rule, which... If you were on one corner or the other corner, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Our government, our secret occult government, our security state, helped depose an elected socialist leader, Allende, who was loved, beloved. He's still beloved by the left to this day. And in his place come this junta, led by this Pinochet, Mr. Style there, and there was 30,000 victims of human rights abuses in Chile. 40,018 people were tortured, and 2,279 people were summarily executed by this junta in their attempt to restore order and the value of their currency. So in their attempt to have an orderly society where they made a lot of money, they basically killed all of their opposition. And the Chilean people eventually liberated themselves from this Pinochet, and they made a beautiful memorial museum 
to remind the people about this horrible event that our government, our shadow government, actually possibly participated in creating. Could you play this piece on the Memorial Museum, please? We cannot change the past, but we can learn from it. With these words, Chile unveiled a state-of-the-art museum of memory and human rights to pay homage to the more than 35,000 Chileans who were detained and disappeared, murdered, and or tortured during Chile's 17-year military dictatorship. The exhibit begins with the film that you see here of when it all started, September 11, 1973, the day of the military coup that overthrew Chile's then-government. And then there are the testimonies of the survivors, the people who survived hours, days, weeks of incredible torture. I bled from my navel, my vagina, my nipples, my ears, my nose. But there are also incredibly touching exhibits, like, for example, this letter over here. It was written by a little girl addressed to General Augusto Pinochet, and in it she says that she knows that General Pinochet is a sensitive person, and she appeals to him to release her father from prison. President Michel Bachelet, who survived a secret police interrogation center and whose father was tortured and killed in 1973, commissioned the museum. In the audience was Viviana Diaz, whose father, a Communist Party labor leader, disappeared in 1975. Since then, the human rights activist has dedicated her life to demanding justice, but especially to finding out what happened to him and thousands of others who disappeared. Three years ago, a former soldier broke a pact of silence and confessed her father's fate, a macabre privilege for Viviana Diaz. After being tortured for eight months, my father was finally asphyxiated with a plastic bag. And since he did not die, they injected him with cyanide. After that, they disfigured his face with fire, erased his fingerprints, pulled out his teeth so that he could not be identified. And then they tied his body to train tracks and threw him from a helicopter into the Dia says the museum that pays homage to people like her father gives her comfort. But there is another objective, says Marcia Scantelberry, the director of the museum project, who was also a torture victim. It's to reveal all that was invisible during those years of dictatorship so that the entire country will know the truth, not just those of us who lived through it. Remember, 50% of Chileans weren't even born yet when all this happened. It's often said it doesn't matter what happens, but how it's remembered. This museum is an attempt to allow the past to be remembered just as it happened, so that it will never happen again. You see a Newman Al Jazeera, Santiago. It pains me as an American citizen to know that we the people supported a secrecy, an occult activity that culminated in the deaths of thousands of people who were summarily executed. Now there are going to be those that say, where's the evidence? Well, the evidence is right on Wikipedia. There's 38 pages of printed material that you can download and read about interventions into foreign governmental affairs by different countries. And at the front of the pack is the United States of America. That would be me. And I think that going forward after this terrible COVID 
disaster in this nuclear confrontation we got going on and $32 trillion in debt and all of the inequality in our society, that it's time here in Minnesota to start a Politics 2.0. Honest, truthful, transparent, eloquent, nonviolent, and spiritually informed, working together to make a well-being community for the American people. And if anybody wants to get on the other side of that, I invite them. I will go any place, any time to, ba- to debate anybody on any subject because my summary statement is going to be how does it enhance or detract from the well-being of the people? The only question I want my government to ask and answer, my well-being, my children's well-being, the well-being of everybody we're involved with. We the people support occult, non-transparent manipulations of other peoples. This is not our business model. This is the business model of the British Empire. We are Americans. George Washington warned us to beware of foreign entanglements. We are bordered by two oceans. We do not need to be involved in the problems of the world. Now, there are lots of crazy baldheads that came out of our most elite institutions, our East Coast elite institutions. And those institutions are pervaded by a European traditional Marxist ideology, a foreign ideology. And these academics turn out generation after generation of leftists who then go into our government and they have no allegiance to or awareness of the Constitution of the United States. It's not at the forefront of their mind as an organizing document, as a spiritual guide, as a way that the founding fathers of this country were so inspired to offer us a chance to pursue tranquility and justice and provide for the general welfare and the common defense, not offense. So we were involved, or we might have been involved. I don't have any 8 by 10 glossies again. But our fingerprints as we the people are all over this Pinochet Allende thing. And that's not the only one. There's 38 pages. 38 pages. Go read it. It's right on Wikipedia. You don't have to go looking around in the dark. They've got it right out in our face. I think they're proud of it because it's not hidden. Let's take a look just for fun. El Salvador, another story in the Western Hemisphere where we made interventions into another country's affairs because of the Monroe Doctrine. That's not it. That's Indonesia. Got to go back one. We got a New York Times article. If you can find that article. This article, I'd just like you to put it up if you can find it. It's, it's right under number five. This is a New York Times article that was published on May 12, 1984, about CIA said to aid Salvadorian parties. This is the New York Times. 
published the newspaper of record, all the news that is fit to print, the Central Intelligence Agency gave $1.4 million to two political parties in El Salvador in an effort to prevent the election of right-wing candidate as president, a Reagan administration official familiar with CIA operations said today. The government came right out and admitted it. According to the administration official, unnamed, a source, because, you know, the New York, the New York Times and the Washington Post, they're part of this machine. This is an announcement. According to that, to that administration official, the $1.4 million funneled to the parties was part of a total $2.1 million the intelligence agency spent in a Salvadorian election operation that was designed both to buttress the electoral machinery. I have to read that again. To buttress the electoral machinery and to prevent the election of Mr. Dabuson. I think this is a yin and yang. How can you have a free election where you buttressed the electoral machinery, but put your hand on the scale so one of the candidates can't win? This is called a contradiction. And that's why all we have to do is tell the truth. This is so, this is so, this is actually funny. I'm trying not to swear. So let me do it light. This is so BS, it's hilarious. I have to read it again for my own personal enjoyment. You'll have to put up with my style. The operation was designed to both buttress the electoral machinery and to prevent the election of Mr. Dabusan in the New York Times, May 12, 1984. You can go find it online. The CIA gave 960000 to the Christian Democrat Party to support the candidacy of Jose Napoleon Duarte, who was a big buddy of Reagan's. I mean, this is so, you know, here we are, CIA, a cult. For some reason, they were outed on this deal. Maybe they were, maybe this was advertising. It could have been advertising. But they actually published this article, and it's out there for everybody to see. And this is yet one more, one more notable instance where the Atlantic Charter was overwhelmed and, and disempowered by the Monroe Doctrine. We might think about this in terms of the Ukraine. When things happen in your backyard, you know there's a different set of rules. There was no evidence that our government ever in the Western Hemisphere really laid back and let politics play, it, play itself out in these countries. Our hand, 38 pages of intervention in country after country after country after country. Our security services, through all kinds of manipulations. Our presidents, like President Kennedy, putting his, his, his hand on the scale. Our entire government was good at manipulating elections. Hmm. I wonder what they've done with that skill today. Let's take a look at how far this thing could go in the bag. Let's take a look at number six, Iran-Contra. It was one of America's most notorious presidential scandals that most cost Ronald Reagan his presidency. The Iran-Contra Affair.
In the early 1980s, the U.S. was still in a Cold War with Russia, and anti-communist sentiment was strong. During his presidential campaign, Reagan promised to assist anti-communist insurgencies around the world. For a brief time under Reagan, the CIA trained and assisted groups fighting communist leaders abroad. Reagan was particularly interested in a group called the Contras and their battle in Nicaragua. The Contras were a group battling the Cuban-backed Sandinistas, a communist group who had seized power in 1979. Reagan called the Contras the moral equivalent of our founding fathers. But much of the Contras funding came from the cocaine trade. Because of this, Congress passed the Bolin Amendment, specifically aimed at keeping American money from funding the group. That happened in 1982, shortly after Reagan took office. The amendment restricted the CIA and Department of Defense from using funds to provide military assistance to groups that were trying to overthrow Nicaragua's government, groups like the Could you stop it just for a second? I just want to point out that this Bolin Amendment indicates that we had a functioning government, a three-branch government. There was congressional oversight. There was robust dialogue and disagreement about U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy. Our government worked much better then when there was disagreement. Now we have a very happy kind of consensus. Very, very little pushback. Why? Because we the people are not in the streets. We the people are not on a letter-writing campaign. We the people are not exercising our will to oppose piracy, drugs, and slavery, and untruths, half-truths, occult activities, the funding of nefarious and, and devastating regimes. We don't push back. But Boland did, and he passed an amendment, put an amendment on a bill that said, you the CIA, you the Department of Defense, we know you're in bed with drug traffickers, and we're not going to let you do it because those drugs come up into the United States and they create unwellness for the American people. Somebody in the government cared about the well-being of the American people. Praise the Lord. Somebody cared. We're going to look up this Boland and come back to him because I'm sure he has an interesting story. Let's go ahead and remember what was and what we could get back to with a little bit of involvement from We the People. Please continue. Just to recap, Bolin Amendment, Amendment prevented this, didn't but stop it didn't Reagan. stop Reagan. The president told his national security advisor, Robert McFarland, to help the Contras anyway, regardless of the cost. McFarland found opportunity in Iran. In 1985, an Iranian-backed terrorist group held seven American hostages in Lebanon. Reagan insisted his advisors find a way to bring the hostages home, saying, I want you to do whatever you have to do to help these people keep body and soul together. So with permission from Reagan, McFarland made a deal. The U.S. would give Iran weapons, and Iran would broker the release of the hostages. This happened even though Reagan publicly insisted he would not negotiate with terrorists and despite the fact that there was a trade embargo with Iran. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. The deal with Iran didn't just secretly secure the release of the hostages in exchange for weapons. There was money involved. 
While $30 million had been allocated for the weapons, the CIA funneled a portion of that money to the Contras in Nicaragua, the group Reagan supported in their guerrilla fight against the Sandinista government. In 1986, the Lebanese newspaper Al-Shara reported the arms deal, and everything began to unravel. That prompted an investigation by the U.S. Attorney General who discovered that only 12 million of the 30 million dollars actually went toward weapons for Iran. The rest of the money was sent to the Contras in Nicaragua. Recap, Reagan makes a secret deal. U.S. government allocates 30 million for the weapons, but 18 million bucks of that money goes to Nicaragua. The revelations were explosive. Reagan denied the allegations that he had negotiated with terrorists. But Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North came forward and acknowledged that he diverted funds to the Contras. North also said Reagan knew about it. North's testimony would inspire the press and Congress to launch investigations against Reagan for the rest of his presidency. Texas Senator John Tower led the investigation into the scandal. The Tower Commission determined it was Reagan's lack of oversight that allowed Iran-Contra to happen, but did not implicate Reagan directly. It wasn't until another congressional investigation in 1987 that Reagan finally testified. On May 5, 1987, joint hearings were televised investigating the covert arms deal with Iran and the assistance to Nicaragua. The hearings would go on for 41 days. Reagan was never charged, but McFarlane, Oliver North, four CIA officers, five government contractors, and Reagan's national security advisor, John Poindexter, were all found guilty. Yet, speculation about Reagan's involvement lingered on. Press investigations would go on for years to follow. While Reagan's image suffered a bit, he still left office with one of the highest approval ratings of any president in U.S. history. And that's the critical part. Even though he lied, even though he presided over administration that violated the law, even though many of his key operatives were indicted, we the people thought he was just like sliced bread. We loved him. And this is why we have a problem. We tolerate and we support non-transparent, non-truthful, and violent actions in the world. And we're told, and I you know, I, I've, I mean, I, if we don't do this, you know, people are going to take us over. Well, you know what? In our politics here in Minnesota, we're going to be honest. We're going to be transparent. We're going to tell everyone we talk to that we're here to serve the people and to enhance their well-being. We're going to look at every problem through the lens of well-being. And we're not going to argue with people behind their back. We're not going to call them names behind their back. We're not going to impugn them behind their back without knowing their motives. We're going to be very transparent, very upfront, and we're going to listen to people if they have the courage to talk to us. Because many times they don't. And why is that? Because they really have nothing to say. That's why they're scurrying around in the corners. They don't have any ideas. They don't have any creativity. They don't have any victory. They don't have a plan. They just have a little petty bit of power. And they want to hang on to that power. And in the meantime, that hanging on 
is getting in the way of me protecting my family. It's getting in the way of you protecting your family because this kind of petty, non-effective governance with the lies and the deceit and the backstabbing works its way through the system all the way up to the CIA, and these people go intervene into the lives of people. And guess whose lives they might be intervening into now? Where did this expertise go? How is it being wielded today? What is our security state doing today with this enormous power that we've developed, this digital power? You know, back here in these old days we're talking about, they had to get on an airplane and fly there, meet with somebody, talk to them. They don't have to do that anymore. Get on Zoom. Don't even have to leave the house. Hey, in my bathrobe, I can manipulate the world. We don't want the politics of manipulation. And how do we stop it? Person to person right here at the, in Minnesota, in Georgia, in Florida, in New York, in California, the conduct that we demand of each other becomes the conduct of our party. The conduct that we demand of each other will become the conduct of our party. We're a political culture, and the culture is modified, the rules are modified by the participants in the culture, not by some leadership. Who are they? They're irrelevant. What's relevant is we the people. How we walk forward, the next step we take. Will it be an honest step? Yes. Will it be a nonviolent step, a loving step? Yes, because we need our own institutions. We need our own political culture. We need our own alternative economy. We need our own way of doing things. We just need to ignore these people. We are many, 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 many increments of power greater than they are. They are small. We are big. They are corrupt. We are pure. Let us go ahead now and engage in that kind of a spirit and see where we end up. Let's just, let's just try, just as long as we're rolling here, I want to hit a couple more of these countries so it really sinks in what we the people have been up to these last years since the post-World War II democratic liberal order was imposed, the new world order was imposed under the guise of the Atlantic Charter, a cover story. Let's just really understand what's been going on. Let's take a look at Indonesia. That's a hot button there. Let's hit that Indonesia on Sukarno. Did the CIA make a fake adult film about the Indonesian president? After the fall of Eastern Europe and China to the communists, the Americans and their allies were terrified of the further spread of communism in Asia. Indonesia was one such country where communism genuinely threatened to engulf the country. The US believed that the Indonesian president, Sukarno, was leaning too close to the left and that the country was close to a communist takeover. After considering an assassination attempt, the CIA decided instead to create an adult film starring a Sukarno lookalike and a blonde Soviet air hostess, believing that this would discredit him. This idea got as far as production, but for some reason it was never released. I mean, what can you say? This is a Muslim country. It is the largest Muslim population in a country in the world. Indonesia is a very devout country. So they had this leftist leader, which already is in conflict, you know, with, with the Muslim hierarchy. And the CIA says, well, we'll make a porno film with an imposter 
and we'll let it loose into this Muslim country to discredit this guy. Well, I mean, this is going kind of uh, campy. Actually, again, here's the CIA involved working at deposing a leftist communist regime and putting in its place a rightist repressive regime, which happened. And we, the people, fund it, allow it, support. We're proud of it. We're proud of it. We must be proud of it because it's online on Wikipedia. Look at how proficient we are at messing with the world. Is this a skill? No. This is the dark side we're proficient in as a people. Like the scientific method. That atomic bomb, which gives us the validation, the power of our American regime, this is the kind of the dark side. This is not an idea. This is not a soaring idea like the preamble of the Constitution. This is a bomb that kills and, and produces mass murder and mayhem. And then we got this security state out there and our State Department out there, same thing, messing with the entire world. What is the benefit? Piracy, drugs, slavery. Change the business model and the problem. How do we change the business model? Our own way of doing things. We treat each other with respect. We're transparent. We're honest. We're in a service mode. And everything we do, because this country is so unwell, at this, when a person is sick, I mean really sick, sick unto death, and that's where we are, that patient must devote all of their focus to restoring the balance in their soul. They cannot take their eye off of that. They must, as the Shaolin priests say, they must stay in the kitchen and wash dishes until the balance of their soul is restored. Right now, we the people have to be focused on restoring the balance of our country as it was given to us in our Constitution. We need to look back to that founding document, be inspired by it, and produce that kind of well-being behavior in our everyday life. And if we do that, when we go into the political, and we have to, we have to be a people's movement that goes into the political in every town, every city, every county, and every state, from north to south and from east to west. We have to get involved if we want to live and if we want to live freely. Because in politics, if there's no push back, there will be no stopping on the push forward. And right now we're on the verge, on the brink of nuclear war. So we need to push back. In our simple acts amongst ourselves in the political, of respect, of listening, of being focused on the well-being of our community, is the magic that will undo this curse that we brought upon ourselves. And that's what Gandhi was trying to tell us. He brought down the greatest empire in world history by telling the truth. Not so hard to do if we work at it. All of us have different relationships with the truth. All of us. We all have some process as we try to speak the truth. I'm going to tell you a personal story. It's a funny story. I don't think I can get in trouble for it now because it's a very long time ago. I had a business partner. My first, I've been self-employed my entire life. Never had a job working for anybody else. So that started when I was very young. And I had a partner who was a lot older than me. I was 19, he was 35. 
And he used to steal some cash out of the business, which is typical. And I read this, this autobiography of Gandhi, and Gandhi said that the truth is the cornerstone of spiritual development and intellectual development and physical development and well-being just generally. So I read this book, and I, I was very young, 19. I was very moved. And I went to my partner and I said, Jerry, I'm not going to do this. This is not honest. Here's all the money back. I don't want it. We're going to stop doing this, put this back into the business, declare it, pay taxes on it, render unto Caesar what's due to Caesar so I can render unto God what's due to God. So I gave it all back. I didn't participate. And he told me, yes, yes, I agree with you. Those words are very inspiring. And we came to the next year, and he stole all the money for himself. So it takes time to get people to embrace the truth as the cornerstone of their lives. But when we do it as a political community, when we do it as the American people, when we stop lying to ourselves and when we stop lying to each other, that will be the first step in turning this country around. Because once we're telling the truth, and we can feel the truth. We won't be lied to. When we start telling the truth, people are not going to be able to lie to us. You want to sort out truth from lies? Tell the truth yourself. In all of your affairs and everything we do politically, right in your eyes, I'm going to tell you what I think, I'm going to tell you what I feel, and I'm going to ask you to tell me what you feel, and I'm going to listen. Because I don't like this coming around behind my back and stabbing me and never knowing what I really think or what I'm really trying to do, which is give my life for God, country, and family, for the well-being of the American people, to create a community of people that are dedicated to the principles that made this country well, restore our wellness. Anybody want to get on the other side of that? I'll go any place, any time, anywhere, and I'll debate you from within this context. I expect to have elections where 100% of the voters vote for human wellness because what kind of twisted people vote for ill health and death? What kind of sick people support ill health and death? Let's get this sorted out. Let's understand what we the people have been involved in, the blood on our hands. It's our hands. That's why they've got us, because we're in on it. They have control of our country and of our lives because we depend on the system for a material high and for security. We've traded our freedom for materialism and for safety. And the people that we've entrusted with our material welfare and our safety have forsaken the spiritual root of this country and they've taken us to the dark side and we've let them do it. We've supported them. We've elected them. We allow them. We enable them. No more. We stop. We create a new world, a new economy, a new business model, a new way of dealing with each other that are based that this new way is political 
It will allow us to move into this realm and not besmirch ourselves, not defile ourselves with the vileness that pervades these crazy bald heads. We're going to run them out of the town by creating a new community. It's very simple. It doesn't create a lot of conflict. We will only fight when attacked. A true warrior only unsheaths his sword in response to an attack. A true warrior. And, and this is very important, the best way to win a fight is don't be there. We don't need to fight. We need not to be there. We need to be in our own world, creating our own well-being, our own truth, our own love, and bring our whole community together in this circle of truth and nonviolence and honesty. And we'll just walk through these people the way a hot knife goes through butter. They will not be able to resist it because they've never run into the truth. It's been since 1776 when people stood up and said, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. It's just as valid today as it was then, and I feel as if I was sitting in that room when those documents were organized and argued, argued through and sanctified and pen went on paper. I was there. I was a participant. Me, myself, I feel that I was there, and I'm moved by those words. There's one more important one, because it's kind of the root of a really horrifying uh, potential nuclear uh, holocaust cause, and that's Iran. And I just want to pop up this last bit on this coup that we the people perpetrated on the elected leader of Iran in 1952. It's actually been an open secret for decades, but for the first time now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. That is the coup that toppled Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, had moved to nationalize oil production in Iran. Well, the U.S. was concerned at the time that that would mean a victory for the Soviets in the Cold War. So shortly after his election, the CIA began to plan his overthrow, teaming up with Britain's MI6. Now, the CIA, we've seen it spelling out its involvement in a series of newly declassified documents. These are the actual documents marked confidential, top secret, eyes only. It's the stuff of crime and mystery and spy novels. This one talks about the security implications of CIA letters of commendation for those who served in that operation codenamed TP Ajax. And this one, dated July 22, 1953, almost a month before the coup, it talks about preparing an official American statement to follow a successful coup. So let's dig deeper into this story. We're joined now by Middle East analyst Robin Wright. She's in from Washington. Robin, this is an event that the Iranians still talk about 60 years later with, with surprising frequency. What have you learned from these documents that you got to get a look at? 
Well, I've written about this episode in three different books, so this is, as you point out, not something new, but the fact is the United States has finally openly provided the documents and details. And it talks about how this was approved at the highest levels of government. It details the amount of money that went into buying, uh, currying favor among the various sectors of Iranian society. Uh, and it points out how important this really was. Uh, little did, it, did the CIA understand that this would have extraordinary repercussions 25 years later. And, you know, one of the things that's fascinating is, like, it is an open secret. This is something that we've heard from uh, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, uh, President Obama as well, uh, both of them referring to this as this co cooperation that mm -hmm. happened. But the first time that the CAA has really acknowledged its role in this, do you think there's going to be any kind of uh, shift or a change or a, a way that uh, president, the new president of Iran, uh, Hassan Rouhani, uh, can open up a new dialogue with the United States? Well, the release of this, these documents were as a result of a freedom of information inquiry. Uh, so this was not something that the United States voluntarily provided. But it does come at a very curious or interesting time because Iran has a new president who's talked about moderation and trying to engage in really serious dialogue with uh, the outside world, world's six major powers, and even hinted at direct talks with the United States. Um, and it's very interesting how this release of documents is playing in Tehran. Uh, the fact that the United States has acknowledged it openly, put it out there on the table, may actually help both sides get beyond it. Uh, the United States has formally apologized for it in the past, but in vague terms. Uh, now the details are known, and kind of fessing up may change the atmospherics at least. And Robin, you know, this, uh, this case perhaps explains to, to some uh, Americans, to, to some of us, why, uh, are, why in the Middle East, in countries like Iran, some of the public opinion is so mixed and, and negative, really, when it comes to the U.S. We're still feeling uh, the after effects of that coup, which was carried out at the height of the Cold War, uh, to this very day, right? Uh, absolutely. And it did lead to uh, the, abor the abortion of, of uh, the evolutionary political process led to a revolutionary process 25 years later for which the United States is uh, still trying to recoup. Uh, Iran had been one of the two pillars of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, and this was a tremendous loss, not just because it's a, an oil-producing country. It has va very valuable geostrategic consequences. Um, and this is a moment that uh, that turned everything, mm -hmm. two very close allies against each other. And uh, this is a moment that, that uh, these documents kind of illustrate the consequences of opting for stability over democratic values, um, which is, resonates in terms of what's happening in Egypt, Syria, and elsewhere in the Middle East today. It has a regional impact. Uh, Robin, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You know, sometimes when I listen to things, to the half-truths, to the quarter-truths, to the outright lies, and I, I recognize that uh, uh, we're really uh, manipulated. We're just manipulated by the media. And here comes this, oh, she's, oh, I've written many books. I guess that makes her an expert. She's written a book. Great. Fantastic. I didn't read it. Could be the treatise of all treatises on the Persian issue. But what I heard was we were great allies with the Iranians. First of all, if you go back before this coup, which was 1952, this was the British Empire. And if you want to understand the devastating impact of the British Empire in the Middle East, going back to Lawrence of Arabia, 
Just go look at the lines in the sand the British drew as borders between these countries. They drew lines in the sand, right down tribal lands, pitting brother against brother and cousin against cousin. They turned one group against another group. They armed both sides. They caused civil wars, religious wars, genocides. And while the people were killing each other, because, you know, the Persians are Shia Muslims, and the Saudis are Sunni Muslims, let's get them together. Let's get them hating each other. And the British were masters at this. That's why they were able to get so much wealth extracted with so few boots on the ground. After all, they were a small island nation. They really didn't have a lot of people. But they got these people killing each other and hating each other, and they took that oil out. So when she says that they're one of our closest allies, I think she's spinning. And she left out a little part of the story that's very interesting, the punchline. After they got rid of this communist guy who was nationalizing the oil fields, oh my God, that was violating the fundamental rule of piracy. Don't pirate the shit we pirated. That's gangster, right? So they sent the boys in to kill them. And guess what happened? They installed the Shah of Iran. The Shah. The Shah. The Shah. And he was a U.S. client for decades. 25 years. He abused. He murdered. He tortured. He suppressed. He was kind of the Pinochet of Iran. Not kind of. Actually, he was the Pinochet of Iran. And one day, because there's blowback, and when you don't allow a honest, truthful, and nonviolent process to proceed without interference, you will get what's called blowback. And the blowback was the Ayatollah Khomeini coming back from France and into Iran, and they deposed the Shah. And we have been in a state of war and conflict with the Iranian government from that day. And then, you know, here comes Reagan. That was 79, Reagan-Iran-Contra. I mean, this thing was almost like the Ukraine of its time. A lot of money went there to get disappeared. Oh, and then there was a giant war with Iraq. We put Saddam Hussein in power to counter the Iranian Revolution, the Khomeini. And we had a big war, huge war, war. And all the oil kept flowing out of the Middle East. And people made a lot of money on the oil. And people made a lot of money on the weapons. And then there was blowback again because Saddam Hussein ran off the leash. He got off the leash. He thought he had the okay to, from President Bush the first to attack Kuwait. It was a bad communication. And he ran in there and he took their stuff. More piracy. What he was thinking was, hey, if the British and the Americans can take people's stuff and they can pirate it, so can I. I'm a badass. And he had style. And he said, if that's the model, if that's the business model, I'm going to get in on it. I want in on that model. That's a very profitable model. You don't have to work. You don't have to create. You don't have to produce. You don't have to distribute. You just go steal people's stuff. That's profitable. So this went on and on. After this little caper in 52, where the CIA intervened into these Iranian elections, and then this guy won, this communist, who then nationalized the oil fields, 
the British, MI6 and the CIA teamed up and they got rid of them and they put in the Pinochet, the Shah of Iran for 25 years. And we're still dealing with this problem. This is 1952. This is 2023. Okay? These mistakes when there's lying and backstabbing and violence, these things reverberate through history because this is trauma. We impose a psychological and physical trauma on another people. And that post-traumatic stress disorder that's associated with that trauma, it does not go away. The sins of the father are visited on the children, even onto the third generation, because that trauma reverberates through the generations. So when that reporter says, well, you know, really, they don't, well, it's a mixed feelings. Of, not, the feelings are not mixed about the United States of America in the Middle East. If they're on the payroll or they're not on the payroll, if they're not on the payroll, they might be on the payroll tomorrow. And if they're on the payroll today, they might get cut off tomorrow. And everybody knows it. And you know what they think? We want to get paid, and we hate those people. But we'll take the money and the guns, but we hate them. And that resentment and that hatred just builds and builds and builds because we continually intervene in Syria, in Turkey, in Iran, in Iraq. We invaded Iraq. I mean, how much more of an intervention do you need than going in and invading a country and getting rid of its government? That's kind of a reboot. I think the person's name was uh, George Bush the first, and then George Bush the second. You know, these kind of things are us. We elect these people. Our conduct, what we expect of ourselves, how do we change it? With each other in this community. Honesty, integrity, forthrightness, transparency, oratory, composition that is deployed to create a more perfect union. Oratory and composition deployed to make a more perfect union. And when we do it with truth and in love, it's very well-being generating. This process of reclaiming our country from this foul business model can actually enhance our well-being if we think about how to do it with wisdom. If we listen to a Gandhi, it wasn't that he wasn't a cruel revolutionary. He just knew how to do it in a way that it didn't destroy his own soul. And I'm going to follow that path because what's most important to me is maintaining the integrity of myself. And I want to see every person in this free people of America community enhance their well-being, maintain their integrity, build this community, divorce ourselves from this terrible business model, discontinue being involved with people who are not honest. And how do we do it? Be honest ourselves. So on that note, if you like this content, please click the subscribe button. Please go to Free People Radio. Please look for Royce White. we got a lot of great stuff coming down the road, interviews and building this community up. Uh, we're totally dedicated to the well-being of the American people. And I'm going to say this again. Anybody that wants to get on the other side of well-being, show up. Tell me where. I'll be there. 
I will learn from the experience, and hopefully so will you. So um, this is David Penn signing off for today, and I look forward to seeing you soon again.